Good to see everyone here this morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and this morning, it is going to be my pleasure to open up God's Word and lead us in our study of it this morning. Uh, here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe that it is how God speaks to us. It is how we learn who He is and, and who we are and what He asks of us and what He has done for us. And so because of that, we place a high value on studying the Bible here at Trinity. We do a type of teaching called ex- expositional or expository teaching, which means we open up the Bible, we read through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, we try to understand it in its context, and then apply it to life. Usually that means we just go through books of the Bible uh, bit by bit, and we are starting a new book study this morning in the book of Philemon. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you this morning, turn with me this morning to Philemon. You can call it Philemon chapter one, but there's just one chapter, so uh, it'll be really easy once you locate Philemon to find your way to where we're at this morning. We're going to be in verses one through 12. Uh, If you did not get a listening guide on your way in, piece of paper that has our text, it has some space to take notes, we'll help you follow along. You can slip your hand up and Alex will make sure that you get one of those from the back. Philemon 1, verses 1 through 12. So we're back in the New Testament now. Uh, We're going to be spending two weeks in Philemon this week and next. It's a short little book, but packed full of really amazing truth that I can't wait to dig into. Uh, And then after that, we're going to be starting our Christmas series, which will be going into the book of Matthew. We're going to go through the first two chapters of Matthew through the Advent season. uh, And then in January, we're just going to keep going and do the rest of the book. So we're going to be going through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the roadmap for what lies ahead. But Philemon, uh, we're going to be doing over the next two weeks. So verses 1 through 12, we're covering this morning. Uh, And Philemon is a book about reconciliation. You might have picked up as we went through the scripture reading so far today, the focus there on God reconciling the world to himself, on us acting as ambassadors of reconciliation who go out into the world on, the, on behalf of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philemon is a book that is all about reconciliation. Like we value the gospel here at Trinity. We're, we're really big on it. We are big on preaching the message of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the peace that that brings us with God. But we live in a nation, we live in a world that is filled with brokenness, that is filled with shattered and fractured relationships. And maybe sometimes you're like me and you're tempted to look around at this world around us and think, can the gospel really make a difference in this? Can the gospel really mend broken relationships among people, broken relationships among races, broken relationships among nations, among the political spectrum? Can the gospel really bring reconciliation like that? Maybe you see that brokenness all around, and maybe for you it's more personal than that. Maybe you've experienced deep brokenness in your family. Maybe among close friends you've had a relationship that has gone south. Maybe you felt it in a marriage Maybe you felt it in the church, the place where where it should be a safe space, right? Where relationships should be founded in Christ. Maybe you felt brokenness and, and, and a fractured friendship even in the church. Can the gospel bring reconciliation in the middle of that kind of pain? Like really, not just in platitudes, not just in religious nice speak, but can it actually make a difference? Well, we're going through the book of Philemon over the next two weeks because the answer to that question is yes. The gospel can make a difference. The gospel can bring healing and forgiveness and reconciliation, even in the hardest of cases. Philemon is a case study in the hardest of cases. This is a deeply personal letter 
where Paul writes, not just to a church, but into a deeply personal situation, a relationship, a conflict, and speaks to the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ. It speaks into a relationship with a ton of baggage to overcome, a relationship that that is filled with both personal hurt and betrayal, and also with social views and expectations that have the deck stacked against it. So as we learn the story of Philemon, and as we read the letter, we're going to see the gospel speaking into and transforming one of the hardest cases imaginable. We'll see a friend between two parties play peacemaker in a masterful and a deeply sacrificial way. And we'll see how the gospel makes a way forward for us, right here in real life, for me, for you, for those that you love, for our world. This is a message of reconciliation that transcends any barrier you can imagine. And so I'm excited this morning to read through the book of Philemon and to dive into it and see how it can help us as we face the brokenness that's all around us. So join me in reading, if you will, Philemon chapter one, we're going to read verses one through 12. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Pray with me as we study this text together. Father, as we come to your word, as we come to this this story, the story of brokenness and reconciliation, God, we feel our weakness. And we ask this morning that what we have not, you will give us. What we know not, you will teach us. What we are not, you will make us by the power of your spirit. And we know that you are able to do so. And we rejoice in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're jumping into a new letter. Uh, It's a little bit different than Daniel. It's a little bit shorter than Daniel. It has a little bit less crazy prophecy than Daniel. So some of you are probably like, yes, yes, no more visions and beasts and horns and all that stuff. Uh, It's gonna be a little bit different in Philemon, but we need to set the context, right? We're jumping into a whole new book. And if we're gonna understand this rightly, we've gotta understand when it was written, who it was written from, who it was written to, what this story is about. Because Philemon is about a story, but we're reading a a letter that is written into the story. So it assumes that we know some of the context about what it is that's going on here. So what is this whole situation about? Well, this letter is written in the 60s AD, not the 1960s, but the original 60s, by Paul. Uh, Paul is a follower of Jesus. 
He is a missionary and church planner, one of the great founders of the early church. Paul was a guy who persecuted Christians, who hated Christians. Uh, He was a religious zealot who thought Christianity was a threat to the worship of God. He tried to eradicate it until Jesus appeared to him, changed his life, and he became this great missionary uh, reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And so he went around the Roman Empire of his day, planting churches, introducing people to Christ. And the book is written to Philemon, one of the men who came to Christ through the ministry of Paul. So Philemon is a man who lived in the city of Colossae. Uh, It's also written to his wife, uh, Aphia, their son, Archippus, and the church that met in their house. Now, if the word Colossae sounds a little familiar, for those of you who are with us for our journey through the book of Colossians, same church. So Philemon is one of the guys in the church at, at Colossae, and his family are leaders in this church. They're leaders there by virtue of hosting a portion of the church in their house, right? We're told to the church that meets in your house. They're also leaders by virtue of Archippus's budding pastoral ministry. So Philemon's son, Archippus, is, is a young man who is becoming a pastor, exercising pastoral leadership in the church there at Colossae. How do we know that? Am I making that up out of thin air? No, we know that from Colossians 4.17, which is the end of Colossians when Paul's kind of giving his greetings, if you remember back from our study, say hey to this person and this person and this person. One of the things he says there is, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So Philemon's son becoming a pastor, exercising pastoral leadership, all this to say this family that Paul is writing the letter to is an influential family in the church. They're leaders. Uh, They're those who give and who host uh, in order to see the church flourish. And Paul writes to them warmly, right? If we look at the way he opens the letter, he wishes them God's grace and peace as a fellow follower of Jesus. And, And even more, Paul is a spiritual father to them. We're going to see that more as we get through the rest of the letter. Um, But as he writes here, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's evident that there's a great amount of affection present in this letter. There's a relationship that has existed between Paul and Philemon and his family. Uh, And it's In this, not the warmth exactly, but the way that it's addressed, the personal nature of it, marks this letter, this book out as different than the rest of the New Testament and different from the rest of Paul's letters. Why is Paul writing to them? Why is this in the Bible? One thing you'll notice is, is what makes it unique is the fact that it is deeply personal in nature. If you look through Paul's letters, Paul has written 13 letters in the New Testament, 13 books of your New Testament written by Paul. Most of them are written to churches. Right? If you think through the New Testament, you think of books like Romans, uh, Thessalonians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. These are all cities that hosted churches. And so Paul is writing to these churches with instructions for them. And even the other few letters of his that are written to individuals, you think of Timothy and Titus, are written to individuals who are pastor elders in local churches. And the letters primarily concern how to do ministry in the local church, how these guys are to, to discharge their responsibilities as pastors. Philemon is the exception. Philemon is the one letter that is written to an individual and its contents are deeply personal. They're largely not about the whole church, although they have implications as we'll see for the whole church, but he's writing into a personal situation. So it's a letter to Philemon and it's primarily though about another man, a man named Onesimus. And the context here is Paul is sending this man Onesimus 
to Philemon in hopes of healing the broken relationship that exists between the two of them. So Philemon and Onesimus know each other. They're separated. Their relationship is fractured. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and he's sending this letter as an appeal for reconciliation between the two of them. So they know each other previously. And it's important to note how they know each other previously, because this is where the real power of this letter and this story comes from, is that Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's household. And I want you to just sit under the the shock of that for a minute. We're going to talk more details on on Roman slavery here in a little bit. But for right now, I want you to, to, to just sit under the shock of the fact that this is a letter about reconciliation between a master and his former slave. Like This is a hard case. This is a serious case. If the gospel can handle that, the gospel can handle anything. This is a a relationship that has the deck stacked against it personally. It has the deck stacked against it socially. It has the deck stacked against it in just about any way you can imagine. And Paul is sending this man Onesimus back to Philemon with a message of reconciliation and showing how the gospel can achieve this. So let's, let's look at the Cliff Notes version of the story. Sometime in the past, Onesimus had run away from Philemon's house. We don't know why. We don't know what the backstory is. We're pretty sure that he stole from him in the process because of some remarks Paul's going to make later on in the letter. It's likely that Philemon, or that Onesimus stole something from Philemon and went on the run and disappeared. He lived on the run uh, as a fugitive from the law. We'll talk more later. Runaway slaves were really regarded poorly in this, in this time. It was viewed as a serious offense. So Onesimus is on the run, but he's living as a fugitive. He's living having to hide his, his name, hide his identity. And sometime in this life on the run, he meets Paul. He ends up in Rome. He meets up with Paul. And he, through Paul, he meets Jesus. And he has his life transformed. So Onesimus runs away. He meets Paul. He comes to know Jesus Christ. He develops a close relationship with Paul who becomes a spiritual father to him, right? Well, we saw that in our reading, whose whose father I became in my imprisonment. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to his old master, back to Philemon, so that they can be reconciled and their relationship can be restored and transformed. So that's the stakes. That's what we're dealing with here, right? This is going to be one of those conversations, right? We, we all know the type. This, this is going to be one of those that, you know, you know you have to have a conversation with somebody later on in the evening and you spend the entire day just tense and uncomfortable because you know it's going to be awkward at best and it's going to be ugly at worst, right? It could end up a train wreck of anger and resentment because of all these feelings and all these emotions and all this history that is packaged here. But you know you've got to deal with it. You know it's got to happen. This is going to be a conversation like that. High stakes. And those stakes make the way that Paul starts the conversation all the more curious. Because he opens, not by cutting to the chase, but by talking about the gospel. Look at verse 4. He gets his greeting, and then he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So so what's going on here with these first few verses? What's Paul trying to achieve? Now, if we were cynical, which of course none of us are cynical at all, but if we were cynical, we could say, you know, is he just kind of buttering up Philemon, you know, trying to make the medicine go down a little bit easier? Hey, buddy, you you are great. I thank God for you all the time. You're a great godly dude. So by the way, like, is that what's going on here? No, I, I don't think it is. Paul has a very specific purpose in what he's doing. Paul is talking about the most important factor in this entire situation. To us, we think the situation is paramount. Let's just cut into it and start working through the practical things that have to happen for these men to be restored. Paul says, no. We have to start with the most important thing. And the most important thing is the gospel. Hear that again. The most important factor in the reconciliation of these two men is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Paul thanks God for Philemon in verse four, right? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Why does he thank God? Why? What what is it about Philemon that makes him thank God? Well, he says because of his love. And in the faith that he has for Jesus Christ, the way that love spills out for his brothers and sisters in the church. Philemon is a godly man who loves Jesus, who loves his brothers and sisters in the church, who is giving and who is working on their behalf. Philemon's life has been transformed, right? Think think about this. He lives in Colossae, a city in the Roman Empire. This is not a Jew. Philemon is a Gentile. Philemon was a Gentile pagan who met Jesus and had his life turned upside down, who was transformed, And that transformation has affected the way that he lives his life. It's united him with his brothers and sisters in the church. It's made him one who works on their behalf to build others up in Christ. Paul prays that this spiritual spillover would continue and that Philemon's faith would continue to be shared, building up those around him, right? May it become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Philemon, your faith is spilling over, not just in your life, but in your family's life, in your friend's life, in my life. It's building us up. May it continue to do so. And I I take comfort in that. I take comfort in you, my brother, because of this transformation that Jesus Christ has brought in your life. Philemon is a man who makes those around him better Christians. He's a leader in the church. He's a man of strong faith and conviction. And it's expressly because of this reality that Paul can make his admonition about Onesimus. Right? In verse 8, where we start to transition from this little opening about the gospel to, okay, here's what I'm asking you to do. The first word of verse 8 is, accordingly. Or therefore, for this reason, depending on your translation. So Paul is saying, what I'm about to tell you to do is grounded in this reality that I have just spoken. Because your life has been transformed by Jesus, accordingly, therefore, I can instruct you, I can urge you, I can plead with you to welcome Onesimus back into your house. The gospel is the basis for reconciliation. Hear that again. The gospel is the basis, the basis, not a basis, the basis for reconciliation. Why? Why is the gospel so central to this notion of reconciliation? Because reconciliation is unnatural. 
It doesn't just happen by default. It's not the way that we are naturally bent as human beings. When relationships are broken, they don't just grow back together like those little lizards where the blue tail falls off and it just grows another one. That's not how relationships work. You know this, right? Next time you have conflict with one of your friends, with maybe somebody at work, I want to challenge you to do this. Do nothing at all and see if it gets better. That's not, don't, don't really do that. But if you did that, it would not just get better, right? It, it might be tolerable. It might kind of get swept under the rug, but that conflict will always be there. And in the right moment, it's going to pop back up again and it's going to wreck you. It's going to pull you right back into that same mess. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't just put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Brokenness remains. And it's not natural for us to just reconcile on our own. You want proof of this? Look at the world around you. Look at history. Why do we have racial tensions in this country? Why are matters of race today seemingly hypersensitive in a way that if you talk to people from other nations, even those that have had racial, racial problems in the past, it's hard for people in other countries to, to understand just why it's so bad here, why we're so sensitive about these matters of race. Why are we in this mess? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into it. We could spend a whole afternoon talking about all the factors that contribute to our current racial situation here in America, but there's kind of one big one. And the big one is that for centuries, white folks dehumanized, enslaved, exploited, and brutalized black folks. Let's just call it what it is. And that doesn't just get better. Those kind of scars that are left by that kind of sin don't just evaporate and heal on their own. That's the kind of sin and hatred that will poison relationships for generation upon generation, and it has. Now, there have been things that have gotten better over the last 150 years, over the last 40 years, but let's not pretend that everything's just hunky-dory now. Because there is deep hurt that existed here for generation upon generation, and it doesn't just magically go away on its own. Why do the Jews and the Palestinians hate each other in the Middle East? Why is there always seemingly conflict over there? Is it because of something that happened last Thursday? No, it's because of stuff that happened millennia ago. It's because of brokenness and conflict that has existed for thousands of years. And guess what? It doesn't just go away on its own. It has bred hatred from generation to generation. And if you think that it is just going to get better over the next couple of years because we get the, white, the right guy in the White House to work some reconciliation between them, if you think it's just going to get fixed like that, then I've got some beachfront property in Antarctica to sell you. This is not how we work. Reconciliation is unnatural because forgiveness is required for reconciliation. Forgiveness is required for reconciliation and forgiveness is not natural. Forgiveness is not what we naturally want to do when we are wronged. That's why stories of forgiveness in the face of horrible atrocities, they're so moving, they're so powerful, right? I mean, think about a favorite book you've read or movie you've seen or a story from history about someone who forgave someone who did so much to them. The reason that's so powerful is because it's not how you expect the story to turn out, right? Forgiveness doesn't come naturally. Naturally, we want vengeance, Naturally, we want satisfaction. Naturally, we want repayment. When I am wronged, I want someone else to feel it. I want someone else to suffer for it. And the gospel shows a better way. The gospel shows what reconciliation looks like. 
Because no one in the history of the universe has ever been wronged more deeply than God. Nobody. He made everything. Nothing, not you, not me, not these chairs, not these trees, nothing would exist apart from his will and his good pleasure. And he's perfect. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly loving. He's never wronged anyone. No one can legitimately look at God and say, you have wronged me. You have done something that I do not deserve in order to to hurt, to, to keep me down, to oppress. God is perfect. And yet we have rebelled against him. We scorn him, we mock him, we disregard him. We brutalize and treat as cheap human beings who are made in his image, whom he has placed his imago Dei on. And we wish away his very existence. No one has been wronged in the history of the universe more than we have wronged God. And yet in the midst of all of that, God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. He showers upon us free and undeserved grace at the greatest personal cost to himself. Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul put it this way, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who through whom we have now received reconciliation. This transformation that takes place through the gospel, this reconciliation that God creates, it changes everything about us. It transforms everything about us. When we realize that God has forgiven us a debt we could never repay, all thanks to nothing that I did, nothing in me, then I finally have a paradigm through which to forgive somebody else, right? I finally have a template to understand this is what forgiveness looks like. This is the better way that brings healing and reconciliation rather than brokenness and bitterness and a fracture of relationships. And so as we read in the scripture reading earlier today in 2 Corinthians, we now are ambassadors of reconciliation, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When God reconciles us to himself, when we are transformed in that way, it's not just about me and Jesus, but he does that in order that we might spill over, like Paul talked about Philemon, that we might spill over into the lives of those around us, holding out reconciliation with God to others, showing them that there is a way, a better way, a way that brings us peace with God. And that also brings peace with each other. Because when we experience reconciliation with God, it will inevitably lead to reconciliation among brothers and sisters in Christ. If God can forgive us everything, how can we not forgive our brothers and sisters comparatively small things? Jesus told a parable about that exact, that exact idea, that exact scenario. Guy gets thrown into prison because he owes this incredible debt and he throws himself on the mercy of the king and the king says, I'll forgive you. Your debt's gone. It's washed away. This guy could have never in a million lifetimes hoped to repay it all. 
And what does he do? He walks out the door and he goes and chokes out one of his neighbors because they owe him five bucks. Jesus says, it's madness. The gospel changes our disposition toward others. 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It is only when we understand what God has done for us in Christ that we are ready to embrace the kind of reconciliation that God creates. What the gospel has done on a cosmic scale, it will proceed to do on a personal scale. Through time, as we grow in sanctification, as we grow to be made more like Jesus. So we need to get a couple foundational truths out of the way right here. Number one, this means that if you go to work for reconciliation, apart from the proclamation of the gospel, you will fail. It is not going to work. There is no true reconciliation outside of the gospel and the way that God reconciles the world to himself. Our country will not find reconciliation in the ideas of black or white. It will not find reconciliation in the ideas of red or blue. It can only find reconciliation, true reconciliation and unity through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We hold the key, church. Right? Who are the people who are going to play the biggest and most foundational and crucial difference in matters of reconciliation in our country? It's not senators. It's everyday Christians in their local church, loving their neighbors, sacrificially giving of themselves, forgiven when they are, forgiving when they are being wronged. It's us. Because we know what it is to forgive. We have a paradigm to understand these things. We've been forgiven everything. And so we can work for reconciliation with others. The gospel is the basis for reconciliation. You cannot create true reconciliation without it. Ever try to make a recipe and you're short the one ingredient and you've already been to the store once today and you really don't want to go back again. So like, can, can, we, can we just substitute something else in there? Sometimes it works. Sometimes you can get away with it. Other times, not so much. So like, the point that I want to make here is the gospel... This is not one of those times where you can substitute something else and get by with the recipe. This is making salad when you don't have lettuce. This is making meatloaf when you don't have meat. And sorry, vegetarians, you're not fooling anybody. This is making coffee when you don't have coffee beans. And Alex might have just died in the back. We cannot substitute something else for the gospel. We live in a culture that wants to try, but it doesn't work. We have the foundational truth that God is busy reconciling the world to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. And so I say this because for the rest of the book, we're gonna see a lot of practical things that Paul says to build reconciliation between these two men. And we're gonna be tempted probably at some point to say, man, yeah, these are good things. This will help in, in working for reconciliation in my own broken relationships, for playing peacemaker in others and their brokenness. But if we try to do the methods without understanding the foundation, we're going to bang our heads against the wall. We might sell some books, but we're not actually going to change things. The gospel is the basis for reconciliation because through it, God has reconciled us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness to himself. 
And so only now, once we understand that, are we ready to look at how Paul pursues reconciliation between these two men. So he cuts to the chase in verse eight. He says that because of this, because of this foundation of the gospel and the transformation that exists in Philemon's life, because of this, he's appealing to Philemon to welcome back Onesimus. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, I want you to catch this right off the bat in verse eight. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what? What is required? I am bold enough to command you to do what is required. I'm instead going to appeal to you as a friend, man to man, brother to brother, but I'm bold enough to command you to do what is required. The gospel is the basis for reconciliation. The gospel also demands reconciliation. This is not optional. Don't miss this. This is not an optional endeavor for Philemon, where Paul's gonna say, you know, if you really wanna be an all-star, Philemon, you should welcome back Onesimus. Like, I know there's some bad blood and there's some bad stuff that happened, but, but, you know, go the extra mile, right? You know, work, work some extra credit here, buddy. This is not something that Philemon needed to do if he wanted to be a super Christian and have his own podcast and a book deal and a massive Twitter following. But if we don't aspire to those things, we can just kind of sit and, and be content to let things stay. The gospel demands reconciliation. Reconciliation is what it requires of these two men. I want you to listen to a couple other commands that Paul gives throughout his letters to the churches in the New Testament. I want you to key in on a few different phrases. Uh, the first being in Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. So catch this. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Be who you are. Because the gospel has changed you, walk in this way. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because of what you are, work to maintain unity, to bear with one another. Do these things because of who you are. Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What Peter does not say there is, if you feel like it, have unity of mind. Don't repay evil for evil unless it's really hard and then it's kind of okay. These are commands. These are God's commands to us that we are to have unity of mind, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repay evil for evil. We are called to pursue unity with one another in the church. We are called to love one another, not repaying in kind when we are wronged. This is a command of God for us. The gospel not only provides the opportunity for reconciliation, but it spurs us on to pursue it. It's who we are. We're not who we used to be. We've been changed. We've been transformed. And this is part of that new identity. Is it easy? No. No, it's not remotely easy. 
Like, don't hear for a second that this is all just, you know, if you just love Jesus enough and, and, and you'll eventually end up happy and unity will happen and everybody will be smiling and it'll be all butterflies. And... No, this is not easy. The easy thing would have been for Onesimus to just stay in Rome and Philemon to just stay in Colossae. Right? It seems like they had good things going. Church in Colossae is going well in your house. Your son's a pastor. Like People are being blessed by your love for others. Onesimus is, is being a great help to Paul in his imprisonment. He's growing. He's being changed and transformed. Everybody's doing just great hundreds of miles away. Why upset the apple cart? Practically speaking, it would have worked for them to just say, you know what? We had some bad stuff go down. You do your thing. I'll do my thing and everything's going to be just fine. But God's purpose for us in Christ is not to do what's easy. You find me a Bible verse for that and I'll repent right here, but it doesn't say it anywhere. God's purpose for us in Christ is to conform us more and more into the image of his son. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are in Christ, if you've been transformed by the gospel, God's purpose for you, God's will for your life, we always want to find what's God's will for me. I can tell you with 100% certainty, God's will for your life is for you to become more like Jesus so that you might be a brother, a sister to Jesus Christ. That, that is flooring language to me. We do Romans 8 and the back half of Romans 8 a lot. I think it's easy to overlook that. Be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. That we as Christians are mentioned in the same statement as a younger brother or sister of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of relationship God has created. He's not just forgiven us and like, all right, we're, we're clear, but you know, let's, be, let, let's be clear who's really... You know, we don't want to get too close or anything like that. No, he says, Jesus is your elder brother. You are a younger brother or sister to Jesus Christ. That's how God has brought you into his family. He's adopted you as a son. He's adopted you as a daughter. And because he's working to make us more like Christ, what's going to do that for Philemon and Onesimus? Pursuing reconciliation. Pursuing reconciliation and the unity of the spirit will make them more like Jesus. So Paul is reminding Philemon here that this is what the gospel requires. This is what should flow from who he is now in Christ. But he's also doing much more than that. Right? This is one friend appealing to another to do what is right and what is good. What's good for him, what's good for Onesimus, what's good for Paul, what's good for the church as a whole. I look again at verse 8. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul had spiritual authority over Philemon. He's like, spiritually, I'm your father. I introduced you to Christ. I planted your church. This is the leader in the church at the time. He says, if I, if I wanted to, I have full authority in Christ to stand here and say, you need to reconcile to Onesimus but he prefers to appeal to him instead. Man to man, brother to brother, friend to friend. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Quick side note here, for pastors, leaders, or those who aspire to either, 
The fact that you have authority, even legitimate authority, does not automatically mean it is best to use it in every situation. That's not what true leadership looks like. Paul is showing here. Rather than puffing himself up, he humbles himself. Rather than leading in the way that we think leadership should happen, Paul lowers himself. Look at the way he talks here in verse nine. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. He is not a picture of worldly power. This is not a guy who gets massive Twitter followings and book deals in our culture today. He gets thrown in jail for preaching Christ. I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Paul leads by humbling himself, which is appropriate because he then makes a passionate appeal on behalf of one who was of very little regard from a worldly perspective. Right? I appeal to you from my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That sentence is revolutionary. Don't miss that for a moment. Let's talk for a minute. I promised we'd do it earlier. Let's pause right here and let's talk about slavery in the Roman world. We need to set a couple things contextually because it's very difficult for us to think about slavery without thinking about the specific slavery that existed in our country's sad history. Right? The slavery in the world at this time had some similarities to that. It had some important differences to that. We have to understand that if we're going to get the, the context of what's going on here. First up, slavery was not a racial institution in Rome. In this time in the world, you didn't become a slave because you had a particular skin tone or were from a certain nation. There were a lot of ways you could become a slave, but it wasn't the exclusive white and black thing that it was here in the United States and in the Western world in the 1600s, 1700s, etc. If you couldn't pay your debts, you and your family could be sold into slavery to square them. Slavery was a largely economic institution. So you, there was no bankruptcy in the Roman world. You had debts, you couldn't pay them. You could be sold into slavery until those debts were taken care of. If you couldn't support yourself, you could sell yourself into slavery. People did this many times in the ancient world. Unable to support yourself, unable to support your family, I'm going to sell myself into slavery so that I can live and eat. You could also end up a slave as a prisoner of war or as part of a nation that had been conquered. Rome went, conquered new territory. Those people could, be, could end up slaves in the Roman Empire. Some people were slaves for a time and then they earned their freedom. Some people were slaves for life with no hope of freedom. Some people were slaves for a time and at the end of the time chose to bind themselves to their masters for the rest of their lives. As bizarre as that sounds to us today, that someone would say, I want to continue to be your slave for the rest of my life. So that to say, there's a lot of different ways that slavery could go in the old world, in the Roman world. Now this doesn't mean that Roman slavery was sunshine and butterflies, far from it. As a slave, you were property, completely at the whim of your master. If you had a kind master, it could be a good life. If you had a cruel master, it could be a brutal existence where you longed for death. Either way, though, slaves were of zero account in the ancient world. They were bought and sold as property. Their testimony was inadmissible in court. And they could be beaten or even killed with zero repercussions, whatever the circumstance. A master did not have to answer to anybody for killing his slave. They were of no account. And runaway slaves were regarded even worse. 
The Roman Empire society and economy were built on slavery. It was the engine that made the economy of Rome go. And so runaways were viewed, not just as, as those who committed a crime, but they were viewed as a threat to the social order, a threat to the empire itself. It was a treasonous act to be a runaway slave. And Rome was deeply afraid of a slave revolt, paranoid about slave uprising. And so whenever there were instances of runaway slaves or slaves who committed crimes, they were brutal in their repression. In many cases, if you were a runaway slave, you were going to be killed if you were caught. In the best cases, if you had a kind master and they were in a good mood, the best case would be to have a letter branded on your forehead, marking you for the rest of your life as a thief or as a runaway. Like that was kindness. That was mercy. An account exists from about the same time as the story of Philemon of a wealthy Roman named Secundus. Secundus was murdered by one of his slaves. And the account of the court case says that the court ruled that Secundus's 400 other slaves who had nothing to do with the crime whatsoever were to be publicly executed as an example. Feel the weight of that. That is how, what, how much you were regarded as a slave. And this is the life that Onesimus was now living. Not only was he a slave, but he was a runaway. He was nothing. He was nobody. He was a fugitive. He was an outcast. He lived every day in fear for his life if he was caught, if he was exposed. And what does Paul do? He makes a passionate appeal for the man. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And Paul says, this is my son. This man who the world says is of zero account, I will stick my neck out for. He's my family. He's my brother. He's my son. Because of the gospel, right? Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus believes he's transformed by Jesus Christ and the gospel transforms everything, right? Paul even makes a joke to this end, right? Here in verse 11, in this little parenthetical statement you have in the text, he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. It seems kind of like an odd thing to say right in the middle of all of this, but you got to understand it's, it's Paul's making a pun, which as a pastor makes me really happy. Because Onesimus's name means useful. That's what the word means in Greek. And so Paul is saying, you know, his name's useful. He used to be pretty useless to you. But now you better believe he's useful to me and to you as well. The inference is Onesimus, not even a really great slave, not a fantastic servant, robbed you, ran away. But now I'm sending him back. Now he's not just coming home now he's your brother. Now he's my son. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And so here he is, standing on Philemon's doorstep, letter in hand. Why? Because Philemon needs him. And he needs Philemon. Because the gospel gives them every reason to reconcile. And it demands it because they're not master and runaway slave anymore. They're brothers, two little brothers of Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe. Think of it. And so Paul says, I'm sending him home. Now, 
That all sounds well and good, but maybe you've got a million questions racing around in your mind at the moment. Like, aren't there a lot of details that need to be worked out here? Is it just that easy? Like, hey, Jesus changed me. Jesus changed you. Here I am. Let's hug. No. Now, there are a lot of questions. How can the wrongs between these two be righted? Are they just supposed to sweep them under the rug and pretend it never happened? How is their relationship changed by the gospel? Are they supposed to just go back to the way it was, master-slave, and just pretend everything's hunky-dory and, all right, let's keep going? Or, or is their relationship fundamentally different in some way now? And what implications does all of this have for slavery as an institution and for what God thinks of it and the Bible says about it? These are important questions. And Paul is going to address them. We're going to dig deeper into them next week. But remember, before we can have any hope of working out the details, we have to understand the foundational truths first. We have to understand the gospel. The gospel is the basis of reconciliation. It is the first step. It is every step. It is the only step. And so if you want to be someone who is an ambassador for reconciliation with others in the church, with others around you, with a world that is broken and falling apart at the seams, have you been reconciled to God? If not, you'll never understand what reconciliation looks like. You'll never understand forgiveness until God has forgiven you everything. God sent his son into the world to live, to die, to rise again because you have a debt you can't pay. I have a debt I can't pay. You could, re, you could live a thousand lifetimes of holy and righteous and religious deeds and never work out from under the mountain. And yet God, being rich in mercy, has extended grace to you through Christ. He's borne it at infinite cost to himself. And he's made you new. He's transformed you. Have you experienced that? Have you put faith in Christ? Have you come to him with faith like a child and said, I want to be made new. Change me. He will. If you haven't, this morning can be the day that that happens and that you have the ability from here on out to start working and living a life of reconciliation as an ambassador of God. But if we try to do all the practical things, if we try to follow Paul's methods without understanding the, the foundational, crucial nature of the gospel, we will not achieve reconciliation. It won't work. If you're in Christ, do you view reconciliation, love, and unity in the body of Christ as optional or as a command, a necessary requirement of the change that God has brought about in you? Are you content with relationships that are broken because it's just easier to not have to deal with it? Or are you working for reconciliation? Is there a bro if there's a broken relationship between you and another believer, I can legitimately stand here today and command you to do what the gospel requires, to work for reconciliation. Now, I want you to notice real quick, I said another believer, because reconciliation is a two-way street. Like We are not commanded to be magically at peace with everybody, because it's not always up to us. Right? The Bible says, inasmuch as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And so there's a type of reconciliation that we can achieve in the church where two believers are involved that we can't achieve outside the church. 
Because we can't make somebody else reconcile. We can't speak forgiveness to someone who has not experienced it yet with God. So there are going to be imperfect relationships in this world. But the church is the proving ground. The church is ground zero where these things can happen because we are both younger brothers and sisters of Christ. We are both children of the Father. And so if there is a broken relationship between you and another believer, do you feel a compulsion to repair it? Or are you content with brokenness? Are you content with doing what's easy? God doesn't plan an easy life for you. God wants you to be more like Jesus and he will work in your life in order to make you more like Christ and it will hurt. It will feel like death sometimes, but it will be good. I can stand here and command you to do what the gospel demands of you, but I much prefer to plead with you in love when you've experienced brokenness, separation with people in your life, take them back. Forgive them. Work to reconcile. It will be awkward. It'll be really awkward sometimes. It'll be hard. It will hurt. It will cost you something. Maybe everything. But it'll make you more like Jesus. And that's the goal. That's the point. So next week, We'll go through the rest of the book and we'll look at how this works itself out practically. But this morning, rejoice that God has brought you out of darkness into life, into light. And if you haven't experienced that, talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave, talk to somebody else here. We'd love to start a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to become an ambassador of reconciliation in a broken world. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may we, may we be regularly shaken out of our complacency. May we be reminded about the gravity and the wonder of what you have done for us in Christ. And that we are not naturally your children. We are not naturally worshipers. We are not naturally loving. But Father, you have brought us near by the blood of your Son, You have called us not just servants, but sons. You are making us into a race where Christ is the firstborn and we are his younger brothers and sisters united together by the splendor of your holiness and your goodness and your grace. Father, may we remember that this morning. May we be transformed by it day after day by the renewing of our minds as we come to you as we come to your word, as we're molded and we're shaped. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to remember that you are a God who reconciles. And I pray that you would help us, that you would spur us on to pursue reconciliation in our lives where we experience brokenness, where we experience separation. Father, help us to do what is hard, to forgive when it hurts, And Father, when we, like Paul, see others in our lives, others in the church who are separated, where conflict exists, may we be peacemakers like him. May we be peacemakers who come in bold enough to command reconciliation, but humble enough to passionately plea brother to brother, man to man, friend to friend. 
Father, make us like Jesus. And when the world looks at the church, may it see something that it deeply craves, a love, a unity, a forgiveness, a reconciliation that it cannot explain. And may we be ready and eager to give an explanation, to glorify you among the nations. Father, be with us this morning as we continue in worship and as we go from here, also continuing in worship, that we might bring you praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.